Well, good morning. It's my great pleasure and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. I'm very glad to be here. Seems like it's been a while. I think um, yeah, at some point, some of the brothers asked Nelson to schedule them home more often. And so we've been around a little less, but we're home more. So maybe you all have had your your ministry here more, and maybe they've been able to, to do a little more preaching just to you. Um, I've kind of taken advantage of that. I've been doing a, a bit of a series at Bethesda, and I call it um, Have a Ready Answer. And basically it comes from this idea that do we really know the reasons behind everything that we believe? You know, you might remember a few years ago or several years ago, like I was just coming into the church and there was this, this big scandal this young lady had been uh, interviewed, I think it was on the radio or maybe it was in the paper, and they had asked her, why do you wear that on your head? And she said, because the church tells me to. Well, that was horrible, wasn't it? I mean, you know, where's the doctrine? Where's the teaching? What's going on at that church, at her church that she was taught that? Where are her parents? But you know, there really wasn't a bad answer. Obedience is never a bad answer. But we would like to know a little more in depth to be able to explain to people, well, why does your church tell you to wear that? What, what is that all about? Um, turn with me to 1 Peter 2. And we'll go down and start at verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul." having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So, we've been getting a lot of questions lately. And you know, right now we have multiple opportunities to, to talk about and explain our relationship with the state as Christians. Uh, a while ago we had a pretty contentious election. And today we have issues with the, the pandemic and things like that. So the message this morning is have a ready answer, the Christian and the state, and in particular, uh, voting. You know, for the most part, our government's relationship with us is, is fairly benign. 
Okay, maybe it's expensive, right? So we need permits, and we have inspections and such for doing businesses. We pay taxes. Uh, but most of us really don't face much intervention by the government in our day-to-day -day lives, and especially in our worship. In fact, in almost every prayer meeting, you know, someone will offer thanks that we live in a place where we can worship unmolested. Now, from time to time, that changes, and the government's nose, like the camel's, you know, finds its way under the tent. You know, a lot of us think right now maybe the camel's, the whole camel's standing right there, but we have different opinions on that. But he's always trying to get in there. And so passions are pretty strong these days. And you might be hearing, um, well, why do or don't you wear a mask? Why did, or why did you not vote in this election? Like this election was decided by thousands, not hundreds of thousands, of votes. So a lot of your friends out in the world will be saying, if you had voted, because they assume they know how you would have voted, if you had voted, well, it would have been different. So what do you do? What do you answer them? Well, that's a good opportunity for us to explain our faith, isn't it? So are we ready? Well, today we're just going to talk about voting. You know, back around just before the election, there was this big thing, this big deal made in the news. Up in Pennsylvania, there was this Amish Trump parade. Maybe you all saw that. And there were all these buggies with big Trump banners on the side. And apparently all those people really were Amish. Um, and they went down the middle, center of the street in this big parade, you know, encouraging everybody to vote for Trump. And, you know, reporters went all around the community and asking Amish and Old Order Mennonites, well, so are you going to vote for Trump? Why, why do you vote or why don't you vote if you don't? And most of them said, well, we, we don't vote unless, you know, the bishop tells us to. And that's just our tradition. That's just the way we do. So is that what we do? Is it just the way we do? And do we have an answer when our acquaintances, friends out in the world ask us, well, why don't you vote? Why didn't you vote? Well, you know, we could just give the same answer. I'm obedient to my church, and our church rules ask that we don't participate in voting or hold any political offices. Simple, right? We're done here. That's pretty common among Anabaptist churches, although some conservative churches do allow their people to vote. So there must be some controversy there. There must be some scripture we could stand on one way or the other, right? Well, so why do we stand where we do? Well, you know, we could give an answer basically with three questions. Where is our allegiance? Where does the government get its power and authority? And finally, who do we trust? So let's start with our allegiance. Now, that's not really an odd question. You know, even looking at Scripture, as Christians, we know we have dual citizenship. And that is that we live in and benefit from and have responsibilities to two countries, God's kingdom and the world, in this case, this country, the United States. John 18.36 says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So Jesus doesn't claim the world as his kingdom. The world is temporary. 
and his kingdom is eternal. This world is also a temporary home for us. Hebrews 3.14 tells us, For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Well, in the meantime, who is the ruler of this world? Well, in Luke chapter 4, we read about the temptations of Jesus. Starting at verse 5, And the devil, taking him up onto a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for it is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. So Satan claims that the kingdoms of the earth are delivered to him. And much as we like it here, that would include the United States. But Jesus tells the Jews that they belong to Satan. In John 8:44, Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So as we look at the world, we do well to remember that its prince is a murderer and a liar. But his rule is fleeting. As Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, into which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. But God's kingdom will last forever. Revelations 11.15 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So, which of these kingdoms do we have our allegiance to? Can we keep a foot in both kingdoms and serve both kings? We have dual citizenship, right? Well, we can have it, but you might want to note that the United States in particular does not recognize dual citizenship. Now, you can have it. You can have a Canadian passport and a United States passport. But, for example, if you had to go to court, if you were being prosecuted under the law, the United States doesn't allow you to go and be tried in Canada. You have to be tried here under America's laws. You don't get to say, well, I have dual citizenship, and you can't charge me with that because that's not the law in Canada. Okay, well, so it turns out that God doesn't think much of this dual citizenship thing either. Now, turn me to Joshua 24. I go down to verse 14. Maybe you don't need to turn to it, you probably have it memorized. Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." So Joshua reminds us 
was the fate of those who choose to serve the wrong king. Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus tells us that we have to choose. If we try to serve both, sooner or later our loyalty will be only to one. Well, so what happens to the people that you know who walk too close to the world? Who they've started to pull away from the church and do more worldly things? Does their love for Christ and the church grow? Or are they pulled more and more towards their new master, the world? 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So John gives us a clear message, a clear measure to tell us which kingdom we're serving. In 5.19 of 1 John, he says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So here again, the, the choice isn't between the U.S. and Sweden, or Virginia and Maryland. The choice is between God and wickedness. Which one will we choose? We don't vote because the leaders of this world cannot help but serve the prince of this world. So we don't vote for them. So whose citizen are we then? Well, who do you belong to? In his prayer in John 17, Jesus lays claim to you. He says in verse 17, 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Jesus lays claim to you. God, the Father, has given you to him. We've been purchased at a great price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And we live in Christ's kingdom right now. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 tells us, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So where are we citizens then? And Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to remember, we did belong to that other country, to the world, to Satan, before Jesus came for us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul tells us, And you he hath quickened, brought alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had all our conversation in times past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. 
So we don't vote because our citizenship is not here. Now, most people who are politically active or active enough that they'd be asking you, why don't you vote, would tell you only citizens can vote. So that could be an answer you give them that they would have to understand and agree with. Then what is our role then? You know, so we belong to Christ and we're part of his kingdom. And yet here we are in, in this kingdom. So if we're citizens of God's kingdom, but we're in this country, what's our role here? What, what are we supposed to be doing? Are we supposed to take part in what's going on and try to make things better in that way? Or are we doing something that God has told us to in particular? I turn over to 2 Corinthians 5. And down to verse 18. This is from the American Standard. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we are ambassadors. Well, what's an ambassador? An ambassador's job is to relay the words of his king to a foreign country. He has no will and no politics of his own. He speaks for the king. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city with hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So like Abraham, we're to live here as though we're just passing through, knowing that this is not our true home, that this place is only temporary. Eventually, our mission here will be complete, and our king will come and take us home to his city. So we don't vote because our vote represents our voice. And as ambassadors for Christ, we can only speak in his voice. So what's asked of us then? So Jesus has sent us to this place. What is our actual task here then? How are we to respond to, to interact with the government that he sent us to? Well, 2 Timothy 2, starting at verse 1, Paul tells us, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 
For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. So we're to pray. Right? That's a task that we've been given. That's a, a thing to do. Right? That is an action that we're to take while we're here. Our concerns are, are not here. The issues and the leaders that we care about are not here. Most importantly, our ability to pray for the people here can be inhibited by our partisanship. So with all the things that are going on right now, do you find it hard maybe to pray for Governor Northam? How easy do you find it to pray for, for President Biden? Was it easier for you to pray for President Trump? Maybe it was harder. What about President Obama? Did, did the things, the policies that all those men were pushing, did that make it difficult for you to lift them up to God? What about your brothers and sisters in the church who maybe have taken a side that you don't think is right? Does that make it harder? Does that put an animosity between you and make it harder for you to pray for them? So voting, which Jesus does not command us to do, interferes with our prayers, which Jesus does command us to offer. Now, I work in a, for, a for a large corporation. It's not a Mennonite company. I think I'm the only Mennonite there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I am. And I'm asked frequently, well, why didn't you vote? A lot of people I work with are veterans. You know, it's very important to them. Your, your patriotism is shown through your vote. And until I joined the church, I voted. I probably voted in every election since I graduated high school until I came to the church. So what do I tell them? Why don't you vote? Well, I ask them straight up. What do you want more for your country? Do you want my one vote or do you want my many prayers? You can have your choice. Which do you think is going to have more effect in the world here? Galatians 1.10 says, For do, not, do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So remember, our prayers are good and acceptable in the sight of God, of our Savior. So we don't vote because we want to please God and not men. God asks us to pray, not to vote. Well, so, but isn't voting a good thing? You know, people will emphasize to you that the system only works if good men participate in it. Good people need to vote. You need to vote so that your values will be represented in the government. And because you can choose good people to lead. Well, let's set aside the issue of who chooses people to lead for a second. And let's just question whether or not voting is a good thing. When good, passionate people vote, do good things happen? You know, 
There's not a lot of Bible, not a lot of voting in the Bible to use for examples. But I can think of one. Let's see how that went. In Acts 26.10, Paul says, And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So how did that work out for the church? That Paul was casting his vote. Paul, arguably a good man and zealous for the Lord, was casting his vote. Now, many people voted for Jimmy Carter because he was an evangelical Christian. How did that work out? You probably have your opinion, or maybe you're too young to have an opinion on that. We don't vote because we know we can easily do as much harm as good. Do we know God's will when we go and cast our vote? Again, whose voice are we allowed to speak in? My voice or Jesus' voice? Let's continue with that thought. So, who do you think was a better Christian? Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? How do you propose to choose the best person there? Does it have anything to do with God's will? Or does it have to do with policies and politics that we agree or disagree with? What about between Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump? How do you choose? Mr. Biden claims he's a good Catholic, and yet he supports abortion. Mr. Trump claims he cares about the common man, but he has so much money that, well, he's got a lot of money. How do you choose? If not the people, well, let's consider the parties they represent. So we have one party that favors abortion and homosexuality and this transgender stuff. And the other party, well, I don't know, when I was voting, I usually was a supporter of the other party. I'll, I'll, I'll spot you anything you want to say about them because I'm sure it's true. So now how do we choose? How do we pick the lesser of two evils? Well, we don't. Can we choose evil at all? We don't vote because Christians cannot choose between evil. We can only choose the good. So is our participation really needed or helpful? So again, the system only works if good men participate, right? Well, does it change a place if good men participate in politics? Does it really make a difference? Turn over to Genesis 19. And right there at verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, 
and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street at night. Lot sat in the gate at Sodom. The gate was where judgments and politics took place in the city, where the prophets came and the people met. Remember in Ruth, the meeting about who would redeem her was held in the city gate. Proverbs 31 tells us that the good woman's husband sat in the gate. Lot was involved in the politics of the city of Sodom. Peter tells us in 2 Peter, and the turning and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. Lot did not make the city of Sodom any less wicked. He didn't change anyone's mind. Even his own sons-in-law and his daughters wouldn't leave the city with him. Not one soul in Sodom was spared by Lot's work there. But some people were spared. Whose doing was that? Turn back to Genesis 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And farther down to verse 32, Abraham says, And he said, O let not the Lord be angry. I will speak but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it. For ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. If there had been only ten righteous men in the city, it would have been spared. Abraham secured this promise by boldly asking the Lord for it. He prayed. Prayer makes a difference. Your vote does not. We don't vote because we know that prayer has a better effect. And so finally, who do we trust? Who do we trust? Who do we put our trust in? 
Well, God has the power to set up whoever it is that he will. In Daniel 2, verse 20 through 22, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons, and he removeth kings, and he setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. Jesus told Pilate what was the source of his power. In John 19, 10 and 11, Then Pilate saith unto him, Speaketh thou not unto me? Knowest thou not, I have the power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? And Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that hath delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Now notice here, Jesus' words can both humble or encourage Pilate. He tells Pilate that the power is not his, but he absolves Pilate of guilt. We don't vote because we know that God in his power can and will set up who he wills without our help. John 16, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Why can we have peace? We don't need to struggle and follow every political blog and news and, and guilty, all right? But we don't need to do that. That does not bring us peace. We have peace because Jesus has already overcome the world for us. John 14, 1 through 4, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go you know, and the way you know. So notice especially, Jesus does not promise us a home in this world. Jesus has promised us peace, and he has promised to prepare a place for us with him. People vote because of the promises of the politicians. A chicken in every pot, better health insurance, better gas prices, no wars, new wars. You're not going to get COVID if you do what I say. And somehow, what these people promise is going to make a better life for them. Well, we got a better life in a different way, didn't we? When we accepted Christ, we agreed to trust him and to count only on him and to have faith only in him. So, we don't vote because the victory has already been won.